0: This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So, the topic of our retreat is the incarnation. Now, the word incarnation literally means enfleshment. If you don't mind my saying this, the carn part of incarnation is the same carn that you get in chili con carne, (laughs) it means flesh or meat. But when we say that God takes on flesh, what we really mean is he takes on the whole of human nature and not just the body. Now, Father Jonah's presentation last night focused on the reasons why God became man. In this talk, I'm going to focus on, so to speak, the metaphysical nuts and bolts of what it means to say that this happened, to say that Christ is God and man. It's a theological topic. It's a divine mystery. We can try to understand it but there's only so far we can go. Now, it would certainly be wrong to make no attempt to understand it. If we really do love God, we'll want to work to understand God as much as we can. But we should also remember that divine mysteries really are beyond the full grasp of human reason, and you can go astray by trying, by refusing to accept the mysterious element and trying to boil it down to something that you can rationally comprehend. So you have to know when to go, oh, I don't get that part. Um, But even that's not giving up on being rational, because you can sometimes at least understand in a really rational way what it is that you don't understand. And that's a kind of understanding. Um, It's a little bit like uh, Jacob wrestling with the angel. You struggle, and you struggle, and then you lose. But then you get a blessing. (laughs) So here's a way to, to get into the topic of the Incarnation. There was a Jewish rabbi, Jesus, and he had a significant following. He also came into conflict with religious and secular authorities. And the conflict got to the point where he was crucified by the Roman government. But afterwards, some of his followers said that he had risen from the dead. And they were followers not just of his teachings, the way we might perhaps be followers of Thomas Aquinas. They were followers of him. They came to hold that that the divine offer of salvation was somehow especially channeled through him, that he not only preached about this salvation, but was somehow personally bound up with its arrival. He was himself the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, and perhaps something even more. This religious movement grew, quickly coming to include not only Palestinian Jews, but also pagans throughout the Roman Empire. The experiences of these followers came to be recorded in a number of documents, among them letters and gospels. Now, experience prompts reflection, and these followers of Christ, the Christians, discussed and debated among themselves what had really happened and who this Jesus really was. They came to hold that Jesus was not only human, but himself personally divine. It was not merely that he was especially gifted and inspired by God, but that he was God himself. And that, of course, explains him, how he himself can personally be the savior. Only God saves. Jesus is the savior, so he must be God. But what this means and how literally we should take it was not so easy to decide. There was a lot of controversy. So I want to go through some of the main events uh, of the controversy controversy. You know, go through some of the main events of the controversy in chronological order. Before we do that, however, let's notice something interesting. These events uh, were largely driven by falsehood. People fell into errors, and the errors got corrected. What we'll be doing then is watching a heresy parade. (laughs) It's a series of heresies going by. And up here on the board, these are the floats. (laughs) Learning what's wrong with these heresies can help us learn what's right about the true doctrine. So heresy parade is a fun concept and it's useful, but that expression makes things sound far more organized than they were. The historical process we're concerned with dragged out over a number of centuries Even though the doctrine of the incarnation is there to be found in the Bible, it's like almost everything else in the Bible. It can be easily misunderstood. That's why God gave us the church as an authoritative way to settle disputes and clarify divine teachings. But authoritative doesn't necessarily mean efficient. The process is often slow. It's not always pretty. There are saints who write beautiful books and make immense sacrifices for the truth, but then there's the other aspect. People get angry. People fight dirty. Even people on the right side sometimes fight dirty. People sometimes kill other people. Through it all, in a mysterious way, the heresies contribute to the discovery of the truth. A slogan you sometimes hear is, doctrine is never defined until it's denied. So people are they're just cruising along, they're praying, they're taking care of the poor, they're going to church, and then someone says something that sounds wrong, and an argument begins, and, men, and then it ends many years later with the official definition of some doctrine. Okay, now finally, it's time for the heresy parade. <clears throat> First and most famously, there's Arianism. We're going to start on the right there and move to the left. Arius was a priest— Uh, from Alexandria. He held Alexandria, Egypt, Um, not Virginia. (laughs) (laughs) Arius was a priest who held that Christ was a creature. People often say that for Arius, Christ was not God, but human instead, but that's not really right. For Arius, the son did become incarnate, but the son wasn't really God in the full sense. He's a sort of demigod, a highest creature, but not truly God. Arianism was a pretty popular heresy for a while. The Arians had good public relations. They had little Arian jingles that people sang. They had friends in high places, like the emperor and many bishops. Their arch rival was the Bishop Athanasius. Perhaps you've heard the phrase, Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world. He had to put up with a lot of trouble. He was sent into exile five times, (laughs) He was pretty hardcore himself. Um, anyway, his side did eventually prevail. Arianism doesn't do a good enough job of interpreting scripture, and it doesn't do a good enough job of explaining salvation. Arianism was condemned by the Council of Nicaea, a big meeting of bishops held in the town of Nicaea in the year 325. Now, in the case, just in case bad Christmas music started playing in your head, and you're trying to figure out why mentioning Nicaea did that to you, it's because that is the council where St. Nicholas allegedly punched Arius. One of the products of this, it's amazing to think that St. Nicholas goes back that far, but that's the way it is. Okay, so one of the products of this council was the creed that we call the Nicene Creed, or not exactly. What we call the Nicene Creed is the expanded version developed a bit later. We'll come to that shortly. For present purposes, the takeaway is this. You have to hold that Jesus is truly and fully God, not like a top angel or something. Okay. The next float in the heresy parade is for Apollinarianism. Apollinarius taught that Christ was divine and incarnate, but Apollinarius understood the incarnation as meaning that the Son took on human flesh without a human mind, You could say perhaps Apollinarius took the word incarnation a little too literally. This view was rejected by the truth, too. The operative slogan here was Athanasius's. What was not assumed was not healed. If God didn't assume or take to himself a full human nature, then he wouldn't be saving all aspects of our human nature. Apollinarianism was condemned at the First Council of Constantinople in 381, that council also gave us an expanded version of the Nicene Creed, the expanded version that is used by so many Christians in the liturgy today. But we just call it the Nicene Creed. That's fine. It's pedantic to always say the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. Just let it go. For our purposes, the takeaway is this. You have to hold that Jesus is really, truly, and fully human. Next in line is Nestorius, a bishop, but also, I'm sorry to say, possibly not the brightest bulb on the string. He asserted on the level of words that Christ was a person, one person, but apparently he didn't understand this in the right way because he also asserted that Mary was not the mother of God, but only the mother of Jesus." Jesus is a human being. It seems that for Nestorius, the Son of God was one person, and the man, Jesus, was another person. And the two of them were very closely united in mind and will. They thought the same things. They intended the same things. They wanted the same things and so forth. This strong unity for Nestorius was enough to justify speaking of one person. But this didn't really make sense. A team is not a person, even if it's the most tightly unified team ever. Nestorianism was condemned at the Council of Ephesus in 431, the council made a special point of saying that Mary was the mother of God. That sounds like a statement about Mary, and of course, in a way, it is. But really, the point was to make clear that the Jesus she gave birth to was the same person as the second person of the Trinity. The person she gave birth to was not only human, but also divine. So she's theotokos, God-bearer. Right, okay, so the person that she gave birth to was not only human, but also divine. Of course, Christ didn't receive his divine nature from her the way he received his human nature from her, but he had, but he had that divine nature, and he was born from her. So she was the mother of a divine person. Nestorianism had a kind of afterlife in later Christological debates, and there was a replay that resulted in additional condemnations at another council in Constantinople in 553. That's not on on the board. Um, There are even some Christians today who think of themselves as Nestorians in some sense. The precise relationship between their views and the mainstream Catholic view is subtle and dialogue has been ongoing. For our purposes, the takeaway is this. You really have to hold that Christ is one person. Okay, so... He's really God. He's really human. He's really one person. Okay, those, those are the three main big things. The next float in the parade showed up rather quickly after only 20 years or so. This heresy is called monophysitism, one natureism. And it basically said that the human nature got swallowed up into the divine nature, with the result that Christ really only had one nature his divine nature. This was condemned by the Council of Chalcedon in 451. There are still Christian groups today who are not perfectly happy with the decrees of Chalcedon, but the differences between them and ordinary Christians may be more uh, semantic than substantive. It's one of these things people get into. The takeaway for us is that when you talk of Christ's two natures, it's not enough to say that two natures came together. You have to specify that neither swallows the other one up. Christ isn't just from two natures. He exists in two natures. He's both fully human and fully divine. He is both fully human not, not. He's just from those two natures. Okay, I'll mention one last participant in the heresy parade. Monothelitism. I hope I spelled it right. I've got a real patristic scholar in the room, so I'm like really nervous <laughs> about, every, about everything that I'm saying. That's okay. That's all right, isn't it? That's okay? Yeah. <laughs> the spelling is not what I'm worried about. <laughs> <laughs> the, Mono- the Monothelites <laughs> held that although Christ had a human mind, he didn't have a human will, Thelema. This view is another way of cutting corners on the claim that Christ is fully human. It's like Apollinarianism, only not so bad. Anyway, it was condemned at the Third Council of Constantinople in 681. The takeaway is that when we say that Christ is fully human, we really mean fully human. So to sum up, through a long, messy process, the church produced clearer and clearer definitions of the mystery of Christ. He is one person, really one person, not a team. He is really divine, not just a demigod. He is a real human nature, not just a human body or even a human mind lacking a human will. When I say that the church provided clearer definitions, I mean that it drew clearer and clearer borders around the doctrine. One meaning of the Latin word finis, which gives us our word definition, is border. But of course, that doesn't mean that the church gave us perfectly clear interpretations that removed all mystery, by no means. We now have a clearer sense of what some of the wrong understandings of Christ are, but there's a lot left that we don't understand, and a lot left that we'll never understand. I have said that the church teaches that Christ is one person in two natures, But I haven't really said much about what persons are or what natures are. So let's talk about that. Person, in the context of Christology, means a special kind of substance. But what is meant by substance? Now, in ordinary language, we might say something like, I'm sorry, but there's a weird green substance on the cuff of your pants. But in philosophy, it has sort of more technical meanings. Sometimes substance means nature. When we say in the creed that the son is consubstantial with the father, we mean that he's of the same nature as the father. But sometimes substance has a different meaning, and that's the one of concern right now. And the meaning we need to focus on now, a substance is an independent, individual, unified thing like a dog. So let's start with individuality. A substance is individual in the sense that it is one particular thing rather than being a universal kind or nature. Humanity or redness in general are universal kinds or types. This human or that instance of redness are individuals. To be a substance, something must first be an individual. The second point is that a substance is independent in a certain sense. It's independent in the sense that it is not, by its very nature, part of anything else. Think of Socrates' wisdom, or his annoyingness. Mm -hmm. Socrates' wisdom is his wisdom. Its belonging to him is part of what it is. His wisdom is, in this way, dependent on him. But a substance is not dependent on anything in this particular way. It stands on its own. Finally, a substance is unified. It's not just a bunch of things in the way that a sand pile is really just a bunch of grains of sand. Its parts belong together and together, they make up one existing entity. So to repeat, a substance is an individual, independent, unified thing. Living organisms like dogs are excellent examples of substances. What about persons? All persons are substances, but not all substances are persons. What makes persons special is that they have the power of thought. A substance that lacks this power, like a dog, is a substance that is not a person. A substance that has this power, like a human, is a substance that is a person. This is why Aquinas follows Boethius in saying that a person is an individual substance of a rational nature. Humans are persons, but so are angels, and so are the divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Human persons can be rather unalike from one another, right? Everyone here is different from everyone else here. But when you bring angels and God into it, you can see that persons can be very, very different from other persons. Humans are material persons, but angels are immaterial persons. Humans and angels are created persons, but the divine persons are uncreated persons. God is shockingly unlike you or me. It's not just that he's smarter and nicer. God never changes. God doesn't strive to achieve his goals. The differences go on and on. So just be aware, right? Person is a a very broad and diverse category. So that's enough about person for now. Let's switch and talk about nature. Everything that exists has a nature. Its nature is the inner principle or inner factor that makes it be the basic kind of thing that it is. Fido might be brown, but his brownness doesn't make him be the kind of thing he is at the most basic level. Neither does his agility. What makes Fido be the kind of thing he is at the most fundamental level is his dogness, whatever exactly that is. Let's say it's his being a barking mammal. I don't know if that's a good definition of dogness, but it'll do. Whatever dog nature is, for our purposes, it's more important to think about what human nature is. To have human nature is to have what it takes to be a human being. To be a human is to have the properties and powers in virtue of which something is human rather than canine or feline As hinted at earlier, that involves rationality and a special kind of materiality. To be human is to be a rational animal. Humanity is rational animality. Now, some people might be inclined to complain that all this is too much philosophy. Of course, that wouldn't happen here. (laughs) Not at the Thomistic Institute. But people, some people, do complain along these lines. Well, theological understanding often requires a philosophical basis. And um, yeah, when you like meet people who are bad theologians, if you scratch the surface there, there's usually bad, a bad philosopher underneath. Empirically tested. <laughs> um, so I think Pope Benedict was onto something When he suggested that God became man, when he did, because he was waiting until a certain amount of Greek philosophy had taken place. God waited to become man until we had a chance of understanding what had happened. Anyway, as you already know, the concepts of person and nature are central to the notion of the incarnation. Christ is one person with two natures. He is one individual, independent, unified thing of a rational sort. He's one of these and not two, as Nestorius seems to have held. And he has two fundamental kinds, divinity and humanity. He was always divine from the beginning. And during the reign of Pontius Pilate, he took a full humanity to himself, He assumed it for our sake and for our salvation, despite what, like, Apollinarius To say that Christ is one person is to push back against any suspicion that he might actually be a team of persons working closely together. Jesus is not a human person working closely together with a divine person, the Son. Rather, he and the Son just are the very same person. To say that Christ has two natures and that these natures are humanity and divinity is to say that Christ really is human and that he really is divine. He's not merely human in outward appearance, but really and truly human. He's not merely inspired by God, but literally divine. I will now quote from a letter written by Pope Leo the Great in the early 400s the divine nature and the nature of a servant were to be united in one person so that the creator of time might be born in time. And he through whom all things were made might be brought forth in their midst. For unless the new man, by being made in the likeness of sinful humanity, had taken on himself the nature of our first parents, unless he had stooped to be one in substance, nature, with his mother, while sharing the father's substance, and being alone free from sin, united our nature to his, the whole human race would still be held captive under the dominion of Satan. The conqueror's victory would have profited us nothing if the battle had been fought outside our human condition. In Christ, then, we find both natures united in one person. But which person? Christians, of course, believe that there are three divine persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. How the doctrine of the Trinity is to be rightly understood is a huge, huge question. In my opinion, it's much harder than the Incarnation. For our purposes, I just want to make clear that Christ is the second person of the Trinity, the Father is not incarnate, and neither is the Spirit. It's the Son who became man for us. It's very, very hard to know what God is like, but to the extent that we do know it, we can apply it to Christ straightforwardly. That's because there's only one way to be divine. Christ is God, so he is divine in the only way anything can be divine. He is omniscient, omnipotent, eternal, and so Being human, by contrast, seems to be more flexible. Of course, there's such a thing as human nature, which all human beings have. To be human, you have to be a rational animal. Fine. But there are many ways to be human. And figuring out how Christ was human turns out to be pretty important. Humans can be sinless or they can be sinful. They can be omniscient, at least in a certain sense, or they can know only some things. They can be vulnerable to physical or emotional suffering, or they can be invulnerable to physical and emotional suffering. Now, a lot of the things I just said might sound controversial, or even uncontroversially false. Is it really true that humans can be sinless, or omniscient, even in any sense, or invulnerable to physical and emotional suffering? Some theologians have thought no, that no human can be sinless or omniscient or invulnerable. They have thought that sin, lack of knowledge, and vulnerability are intrinsic to the human condition. And for that reason, they have thought it important to allow for them to belong to Christ. They have thought it important, for example, to say that Christ did not know everything. Have they also thought it important to say that Christ was sinful? That's definitely carrying things pretty far. But I think it would be hard, actually, to find theologians who actually say that. Probably not impossible. But I think you get the picture, okay? The gist, the general picture here is what I wanna, want you to be thinking about. If we take as a starting assumption that being a human requires having a broad range of defects then we will think that acknowledging Christ's true humanity will mean attributing to Christ that same broad range of defects. But this is moving way too fast. Adam and Eve, before the fall, possessed the fullness of knowledge, and they were invulnerable to suffering as well. So it's just not true that being human requires having all the standard kinds of imperfection and failing. From the mere fact that Christ took on humanity, it's not clear what form his humanity took. Vulnerable or invulnerable? Omniscient or non-omniscient? If all you know is that he took on humanity, you don't know the answer to those questions yet. Now, as the late Marilyn Adams outlined in a little book called What Kind of Human Nature?, theologians like Aquinas answered this question in terms of Christ's mission. In principle, Christ's human nature could have taken any number of forms. In practice, it took the form best suited for his salvific mission. For example, Christ's human nature could, in theory, have been invulnerable to pain and suffering, but then he wouldn't have been able to suffer and die for us. So, says Aquinas, Christ freely took on those imperfections in order to carry out his mission. Physical and emotional vulnerability are just some of the possibilities. We can't go over them all, but let me briefly mention just one of them as a setup for something to be discussed later today. Some people think that in order to be in solidarity with us, Christ needs to suffer from ignorance and even to struggle with sin. But for Aquinas, that can't be right, because if Christ didn't possess all knowledge and all grace, he couldn't carry out his mission. It's the same principle as before, fitness for mission, but this time it requires perfection rather than imperfection. But we're gonna to come to that, like in the afternoon. In summarizing what needs to happen for us to get things right in Christology, Aquinas says that when we say God is man, we have to understand three things correctly. We have to understand the God part correctly, we have to understand the man part correctly, and we have to understand the is part correctly. It has to be really God that we're talking about, in particular the second person of the Trinity. We have to really be saying that this person is human, fully and really human, and we have to mean the is part correctly. It's not just that there's some kind of connection or relationship between God and man, as in the case of a prophet who was greatly filled with the divine spirit. No, a really divine person really is really human. And this gives rise to some startling truths that we have to be ready to affirm. They are, in a way, tests to see whether we understand the Incarnation. So here are some easy ones to start with. God the sun created the sun, moon, and the stars. Sounds okay. Here's another one. Baby Jesus can be killed. That sounds okay, right? Here are some harder ones. God the Son can be killed. Baby Jesus created the sun, the moon, and the stars. Those last two might sound false. However, they are true, and it's important to see why. God the sun and baby Jesus are the same person. Therefore, what's true of God the Son is true of baby Jesus, and vice versa. This is called the communicatio idiomatum, the communication of idioms, or Sharing of idioms. Now, idioms in this context are the distinct properties that come along with a nature. Having toes comes along with human nature, and the Son of God is human, so it's true that the Son of God has toes. The communication of idioms applies to the persons, not to the natures. We don't say that the divine nature created the sun, the moon, and the stars, but the divine persons do. We don't say that Christ's human nature can be killed. We say that he can be killed. He, that one person, is both the creator of the sun, moon, and stars, and also someone who can be killed. Of course, it's because he's God that he's creator of the sun, moon, and the stars. And it's because he's human that he can be killed. That's why it sounds odd. Or even shocking to say, God the Son can be killed, or Baby Jesus created the Sun, the Moon, and the stars. The expression "God the Son" puts us in mind of divinity, and the expression "Baby Jesus" puts us in mind—it puts us in mind of humanity. Fair enough, but let's not be misled. Let's not fall into thinking that God the Son and Baby Jesus do different sets of things. If we do, we won't be thinking of them as just one and the same person. Baby Jesus is not the cutest little baby ever who just so happens to be related to God in the awesomest way ever. Baby Jesus is God, God in person. If it seems strange to say that one person has two natures and two such shockingly different natures, good. If it didn't seem even a little bit strange, that might be a sign that you weren't really thinking about it. There's a text from the Divine Office. It's Well, this part isn't included in the Divine Office anymore, but that's where it comes from originally. Uh, and it's been set to music by uh, a number of composers, and you might have heard it in one setting or another under the title O Magnum Mysterium, yes. I could see people nodding before I said it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, O mysterium et admirabile sacramentum, ut animalia viderent dominum natum, jacentum in presepio. O great mystery, O wondrous and wondrous, O great mystery and wondrous sacrament, that animals should see the Lord born and lying in a manger. So, think about it. He's the Lord, but he's been born. He's lying in a manger. That's surprising. It's shocking. It's not just something cute that should tug at our heartstrings. It's a great mystery and something that should fill us with wonder and awe. That's all for now. Thanks. (laughs) This is the part that's fun for me.
1: (laughs) Uh, So I've heard the terms homoousios and homoiousios describing the, well, related to the Arian heresy. Can you say a little bit about what those words mean and which one is the correct understanding of Christ's nature?
0: Only if Father Andrew promises to um, correct me if I screw (laughs) this up. So homoousios means the same in nature, consubstantial, and that's the right thing to say. so that God the Father and God the Son have the same nature or same substance in the sense of nature. And the homo e usios is a kind of wiggle thing, right? It was like, a, wasn't the idea that it was like they were similar in nature? And that, you know, probably some people were saying, well, let's just say that. That's close enough. But um, uh, Athanasius and his buddies were like, no, 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 no. We're not going to let you get away with similar in nature. You have to say the same in nature. So, like, the the comment is that this all boils down to, like, a tiny Greek letter. Yeah. But, I mean, if you, you know, in terms of how much ink you're using, it is a small difference. Mm -hmm. But conceptually, it's a big difference. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so homoousios is the good one. Yeah. Thank you. Consubstantial. I need to get my head around the
1: the, the, the definitions of substance in nature and um, connect them to to, uh, biology if possible. It seems that substance is similar to... Organism
0: is an, an independent organism system. is an excellent example of a substance. Whether there are substances that are aren't organisms is an important question. But organisms are a great example of substances. the, the, we're
1: tipping, we have this, the independence. Yes, of, of, of an organism. particular I mean, example would be an
0: ant colony. You can also talk about a, a baby, or especially a fetus. Yeah. How uh, they're not, they're
1: not independent. Exactly. I mean, the ant colony is a really great example because. You really do observe within an organism and the diversification,
0: the the, the the drone isn't capable of yeah. surviving on its own. Yeah, good. So so the question is, I don't know what, what um, yeah, so the question is whether organisms are really independent after right. all. So to answer that, I mean, I have like little hints of that in what I said, but I was going, I mean, I didn't want to spend half an hour on it. No, but this is a really important question. The the point is to is to um uh, articulate just what particular sense of independent it is. Because it's certainly not true that um created substances are independent in every way. For the simple reason that every created substance is dependent on God. Right. Boom. So, whatever independent means, it doesn't mean independent in every way. Right? So I think it's roughly something like this. A created substance, it can and typically does, well, certainly they all depend on God. let's, Let's set that aside for one second. They typically and probably always do depend on lots of other things, but it's not part of their essence that they do. So here's just a way to bring this out. You take one of those ant drones. If you remove it from the colony, it won't last very long, but it doesn't immediately pass out of existence. It doesn't just go poof um whereas if you take you know socrates's annoying character and remove it from him like you can't do that actually right if you were to take it away from him it would just simply cease to be at all so the sense in which someone's character traits let's say depends on him is much much stronger it's part of the very essence of that character trait to be of him and the sense in which the ant needs all the other ants or the sense in which, you know, a fetus needs its mother or something. It's not that strong. So that's a sort of hand-waving answer. And now, let's go back. So we go back to the thing about dependence on God. Okay, Aquinas actually says um, that our dependence on God lies outside of our nature. By nature, we are the sort of thing uh, that our, our essence and our existence are not identical, but they're composed, and because they're composed, we need a cause outside of ourselves. So that dependent on God, that sorry, that dependence on God, is something that follows from our nature. So you can use this to make the account uh, given earlier work out, right? So, it, so the, what's important is that the dependence not be essential. And even if Aquinas is right about this, I think it makes good sense that even dependence on God isn't, strictly speaking, essential. It's unavoidable. It's necessary, but it's not essential. Does that help? Yes. Mm
1: -hmm. So, does God the Son have two natures? Yes. So, has God the Son, has it... It is not the right word, but has, has that always been the case?
0: No. Only yeah. since the
1: incarnation.
0: Yeah, since it, whatever that was.
1: So before
0: the incarnation, what was God? Just divine in yeah. one nature. So he 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 took on a second nature. It's
1: a good Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. Right. That's a great question. <laughs> no, that's a good question. So so now you have to like really roll your sleeves up. Okay. So <laughs> here's a way of thinking about it. what happens is wait. Let me back up and say something far more general about the way creation and the God are... Um, how, long, what, how long do we go till? You've got time. Yeah, okay. just break at okay. Oh, good. Okay. okay. So um, let me say something m- more general about the way creatures and God are related, and then I'll come back to this specific question. Because the specific question that you've asked is like a special case of the broader... So there's a general problem of how God doesn't change, right? Because, like, um, you know, he's leading the Israelites across the Red Sea, but, like, 10 minutes ago he wasn't because there they were on, you know, the the west side of the Red Sea going, "Uh uh-oh, now we're dead, right? Okay, so, and this is all stuff I'm basically stealing from Aquinas, right? So God stays the same, but creatures change. Now, This is related to the fact that relations work differently in different cases. Sometimes when there's a relation, the two related things, each of them, there's a fact about it that's related to the that relates it to the other. So, you know, if somebody like punches me in the face, then the fist is like, there's a fact about the fist and there's a fact about the face. Right? So, and there's like, a fact here and a fact here, and they, they they together they make up that relation. But there are other cases of relations where there's actually only a fact on one side. So here I'll put this water bottle up here, right? So we could. Okay, I won't put this water bottle up here. <laughs> it will fall up. I'll hold it now. Before I was I I was holding it up here. None of you was thinking about it, I presume, right? So you changed. You went from not thinking about the water bottle to thinking about the water bottle. But it doesn't change in virtue of being thought about by you. It's not like when you start thinking about it, something happens to it, right? Okay, so that's a case where we have a relation, but there's really only a fact on one side, on your side. There's no fact on the water bottle side, even though we might express it that way grammatically, right? We might say the water bottle is now being thought about by the participants, right? So it makes it sound like it's a fact about the water ball, but really all the facts are in you guys. Okay. Well, um, creation changes. God doesn't change. So all the facts that make um, those true things that we say about God, like God, at this point, God began to lead the Israelites across the Red Sea, right? That sounds like we're attributing a lot of temporal changing facts of God, but really we're just talking about what was happening with the Israelites. Okay, so then, when God the Son becomes human, a human nature comes to be, and it comes to be related to God the Son, but He doesn't change. It, the nature comes into being, the nature of creation changes. Um, does that make sense so far? Okay, then the only thing I would add is this. Um, The connection between creatures like the Israelites crossing the Red Sea and God doesn't make them into one person, right? So God is God, and the Israelites are still the Israelites. Um, So that's a relation where there's facts on the side of the creatures that bind them to God, but not bind them in a way that makes up one person. What's special about the case of the Incarnation, it makes it different, from all other cases of relations between creatures and God, is that the created nature is joined to God in person. So um, you know, if a new prophet comes to be, that's a case of someone being joined to God. But this is more than that, because, um, well, you don't get a new person <laughs> with the incarnation. You get the same old person now existing in a new way. Does that help? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very good uh important question and a tricky one. Like, we could go on about this for a while more. Thank you.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a Christology class last semester, and the professor asked us who the only human person united in body and soul is present in heaven. And we all guessed Jesus, and we got it wrong because it's Mary. Right. So could you just explain a little bit on why or why it isn't appropriate to call this on a human person?
0: Yeah, okay. So, I mean, I think sometimes people make a little bit more about the, of this than they should. I would not have a fit if someone called Jesus a human person. He's a person and he's human. So if that's what they mean by saying he's a human person, I'm okay with that. But he doesn't get his status as a person. From being human. It's not in—it's not because he's human that he's a person. I mean, the reason you're a person or the reason I'm a person is because we're human. But that's not true for Jesus. He already was a person. So when he, he took on human nature, he was not like, okay, now I'm a person, right? Because he already was. And he didn't become a person for a second time because he's not like tw- two people, right? So in that sense, It's important to say that his status as a person is not um, from his humanity. So he's not constituted as a person by his humanity. Um, Now, when people are anxious to deny that Christ is a human person, I think that's the point they're trying to make. He's a person and he's human, but he's not a person because he's human. Whereas Mary is a person because she's human. So, I mean, I think... um, yeah, does that help? Yeah, okay.
1: Mm-hmm. So yesterday in Father John's talk, um, he brought up that Christ experienced the beatific vision in yes. uh, his human nature as well. Yes. So, so my question is, what's the distinction between, like, when we experience the beatific vision, like God willing, and there's no suffering, right, but Christ in his human nature experienced the beatific vision and suffered, like, what's the principle of difference there? Because it doesn't seem to be the beatific vision that changes suffering.
0: Or that like makes suffering a non issue. Does that make sense? Um, you're are you asking how it could be that he had the beatific vision and also suffered, yeah, or uh, yes, and then also, um, yeah, you answer that person I'll see if I still <laughs> okay. That's great, yeah, yeah, no, I know. Um, so. The way things ordinarily would go, remember that Christ's human nature could take on different forms or exist in different modalities. I'm not sure what's a good way of putting this. And then which ones he decides to have are the ones that go for his mission, right? So in the ordinary course of things, the beatific vision could just overflow and completely elevate his, um, uh, the fullness of his human nature, including his body, with the result that it would be invulnerable to pain and suffering and so he couldn't have been killed on the cross and stuff like that but he kind of holds back from that and allows um i mean prevent seems a slightly wrong word but maybe i'll just go with it for now right he kind of holds back and doesn't allow uh his possession of the beatific vision to make his body invulnerable in how that way that,
1: how can you just like
0: the no. That's a good question. Um, I mean, I'm trying to avoid saying the really lame thing. Well, he's God. He can do it. You know? um, I don't know. He's God. He can do it. Um, <laughs> uh, the, the, see, it's a real possibility for the human nature to be vulnerable, vulnerable and stuff, right? Like yours and mine are. Um, So it's a possibility um, that's already there. There's no contradiction involved. Um, Yeah, that's a good question, though. I mean, like, um, I want to think about that a little bit more. Like, how is it supposed to, you know, another way of putting this would be you could flip it around and say, how does it happen that beatific vision flows over? Right, because if you knew that, then you might be able to talk about well, then how you can shut it off. Like if you know how it happens, then you know how it can shut it off too. Um,
1: Maybe I can ask a follow-up question yeah. that'll help. Like, what is it that when, when human persons go to heaven? What is it that changes where they're no longer able to suffer? Like where they no longer suffer? What's that difference between us oh. and going into heaven when Christ coming down to earth? Like, because the commonality is the beatific Christian, right? But what's the difference?
0: Well. Okay, so am I being pedantic if I say that on one level we can't suffer? I mean, until the final resurrection, you don't even have a body, right? So, of course, you can't suffer in your body. All right, but that's sort of pedantic. You're talking about after the final resurrection, right? Okay. Um, I mean, what Aquinas says about the um, Adam and Eve before the fall is going to sort of apply roughly here. You have the fullness of grace and knowledge, and it sort of flows into the rest of you. So your, your body is, your soul is totally subordinated to God. I'm sure he steals this from Augustine. The soul is subordinated to, to God, and so the body is subordinated to the soul. So your body is completely uh, in line with what the soul is trying to make happen. And what the soul tries to make happen with your body is not just like being a good person and stuff but like your soul is responsible for everything like your soul is responsible for your blood pressure but our souls are not super great at like controlling blood pressure i mean it's okay but then when you get older you have to start taking medication and stuff like this so um our souls don't totally have a grip on our body and eventually it gets away from us and then we're dead um so but um once your soul is united to God, it has the and and your um, and the obstacles in terms of sin are removed. Then your soul can be completely in control of the situation, and so now your body is not going to be um, subject to to suffering and death. Um, now Christ could have been like that, but He freely chose not to be, so that He could suffer and die. For Yeah, but how could he? I mean, it's yeah. a good question, right? Yeah. Like, why if if you describe it in a certain way, it sounds like it's just an automatic process. There's no option. Yeah. Um, apparently not. But how do we understand it? Yeah, yeah I don't have anything more. That's a very yeah. nice question.
1: Okay. Thank you. Uh, when Christ is crucified and dies, does his like soul come with him in his body when he? I guess uh, when he descends to hell. And I guess that's sort of like not
0: actually what happens to Yeah, so this is, this, is, this is getting really far into the weeds. I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean it in a good way. And it leads to certain controversies that so far I've managed to uh, avoid. Well, it's, it, it came up in your question. And I just decided not to go there. Um, well, let's say this. So when Christ is killed, his soul is still united to his divine person. And his body is still united to his divine person, but his soul and body aren't united to each other anymore.
1: Right?
0: Yeah. Um, so, but then they're reunited at the resurrection. Right. So now, does his soul go into the grave with him? I guess not. Um. But that's tricky. Because if you say, well, his body's in the tomb, his body's united to the Son of God, so I guess in some sense, the Son of God is in the tomb, in some sense. You notice how much you can get away with when you just say, in some sense. <laughs> and, then, and then, and since his soul is united to the Son of God, then in some sense, doubly, indirectly, I guess the soul, I mean, I don't know. But the soul and the body, like part of the problem here is we're talking about like spatial locations of things, right? Okay. right? So it's pretty clear what it means to say that the body is in the tomb. That's like a physical location claim. Now, are our souls physically located? Yeah, but it's a little weird to think about it. And then is God physically located? Oh, I mean, you're really stretching the language of physical location, right? Um because God doesn't have a body, so he's not to the north or to the south, but he exercises power. Normally, I mean one way to think about talking about where God is is to talk about where God exercises his power. And the answer to that is everywhere. So that's what we mean by saying God is everywhere. I feel like I'm not totally answering your question. Yeah,
1: I guess the question was that like that like when he died, his soul was like Separated from his body, and then during the resurrection, it like was joined again.
0: That's right. That now I think you pretty much have to say that, because if you didn't say that the soul and body were divided from one another, then it would sound like you were denying that he, he had died. died. Yeah. I mean, if somebody goes, "Well, look, I have a fancy theory," I'd say, "Okay, let me hear your fancy theory." But like the first and second thought is that just sounds like you're denying that he died. See, if somebody insisted on that, they would probably say, "Well, look." His soul was connected to his body, I mean, sorry, his soul was connected to the sun, and his body was connected. So, like, they were together. I was like, okay, fine, but they're not like connected in the way that soul and bodies are to make up a normally living human. See, so it's not that might not be a real disagreement, but basically, you know, to play it safe, you want to say that soul and body are clearly divided from one another because that's just what death is. Good.
1: uh yeah i i don't think i understand that too well for a second so if the body and soul separate for a second yeah does the sun cease to exist for a second no 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 well no he doesn't right no 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 i know i know no i mean i mean
0: so he this is related to your earlier question actually right he as a person his status as an existing person is independent of his being human. He's already a person so because he's divine. Is the
1: logos just kind of staring at him die from above? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just having issues like imagining that, you know? Okay.
0: So the logos is not just staring at, right? Because the logos <laughs> is human in person. So the logos undergoes bodily death human death in his own humanity so he the second person of the trinity is personally human and then he he dies so he goes you know like like i mean if he like let's say jesus is standing there and like a camel goes by and steps on his foot right so then he the son of god experiences having his foot stepped on by a camel right so he just he goes through something a lot worse than that dying um but he still continues to exist as a divine person all the way through. So he his um, continued existence is not um, affected by that. Does that help? It's tricky. But- yeah. <laughs> Do you want to follow up? or?
1: Uh, I had a completely different question. Do I have time to ask? This? Sure. Ask it. Just the last <laughs> okay. Uh, there was a question on my final exam last week that I had, <laughs> like, I had trouble and Too grace. little, too late. That's oh, <laughs> yeah. what it is. But it was, why can't Jesus be tempted and why can't he suffer
0: help? Yeah, I'm going to talk about this in the next talk a little okay. bit. So I'll just, we'll just, I'll try to remember to bring that up. I say okay. something about it, I'll say, I'll, I'll go. Ding, 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 when we get there. Thank you. Okay. All right. Thanks, Professor Gordon. Water break. I'm saying that for the person who has to edit this. I wonder if I had just walked away.